Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So we're doing a, a little pause from the Matthew series um, in a sense. In a sense, we're actually just continuing on in the Matthew series. Uh, but we should, I think, be somewhere around Matthew 6 now, right? Uh, but we're not in Matthew 6 or Matthew 7. We're going to jump to Matthew 28 and a bit of Matthew 3. And today we're going to talk about baptism. And so we haven't actually really preached on baptism in a long time. I did check with my dad, and he did a message, I think, in 2009. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure if we have uh, really preached it since, although we do talk about it in the different ministries, and it's part of, obviously, becoming a member and that sort of thing, and we go through baptism every year. Uh, but today I wanted to actually stop and pause and to focus on baptism. And the reason we really felt God leading us to do that was, uh, primarily, we've been praying, and you guys have been praying, that our church would grow in fulfilling the Great Commission. That's been a passion of many of yours. It's been a passion of mine. It's obviously a passion of the Christ too. Uh, when you look at that was his command. When he left, the last thing he did was give his followers this great commission of what they were supposed to do. And when you look at what they were supposed to do, it was to baptize people and to teach them to observe or obey all that he has commanded. And that's, that's really the heart behind what we're going to be talking about today. So it's that, it's that command and call to be baptized. And there's a whole bunch that I could say. Even yesterday, I actually started rewriting my message at two in the afternoon. Uh, that was enough to give me a little bit of panic. Uh, so hopefully it works out. But there's so much you can talk about with baptism because it's so steeped in scripture, but also in church history. And you'd think, well, because it's such a clear command in scripture, and obviously it's so well biblically founded, obviously all believers must agree on everything pertaining to baptism. And that is not the, that is not the case. Um, we have actually find that there's all sorts of different varying beliefs on who should be baptized and when they should be baptized and how they should be baptized, and even what baptism means. And so I'm not going to go through what, everyone, you know, what every denomination or, or church sect believes or has believed throughout history. We, do, we just simply don't have the time, although it would be entertaining. I wanted to just stop or, or start today by looking at what does Scripture say? And we want to base our, our belief out of there, and, and uh, that's really what we want to look at. What does the Scripture say about baptism? And then we're going to go from there. So first thing is, you know, what is baptism? Well, what is baptism? Many of you know this already, so I'm going to start as though... I'm going to assume that you've never heard of it, right? So for, for the new believer or the unbeliever, right to the seasoned believer. That's, that's how we're going to preach this message. It is a basic message, but it's also a very important one, a critical one. So what is baptism? The Greek word translated to baptize is the, is the verb, baptizo. And what it means is to dip, plunge, or immerse. And there is all sorts of secondary meanings and there is even disagreements on when, uh, you know, because some are, are, are about uh, sprinkling and some are about immersion. We're not going to go through that today. We practice immersion here. Um, but, uh, but if you look throughout church history, you do find examples where, where, where there wasn't a body of water to immerse a believer in, then they would do sprinkling. So we don't have to get into splitting hairs on some of those things. We practice immersion here. I believe that's the one that they were doing in Scripture. Uh, but there is some disagreement on that, and that's okay. Nothing to bring disunity over. So what is baptism? It is a Christian rite. So a rite is a, uh, it's a ceremony. So it's a Christian ceremony. Now, before you just say, well, it's just a ceremony. We don't have to worry about ceremonies. This particular Christian ceremony or rite was ordained by Jesus himself. It's one of two that he ordained for us as followers or what we call ordinances. And, uh, and the other one is, is uh, uh, communion, right? So 
It is a Christian rite ordained by Jesus where we immerse a confessing believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, often called the Trinitarian method. And then we raise them from the water to walk in newness of life, right? So we dip them under the water like this, and then we raise them up to walk in newness of life. And that is the, you know, a simplistic form of what is baptism. That's what baptism is. We're dipping them underwater and raising them up to walk in a new life. So there's lots of symbolism in this. Absolutely, yes. It is an outward act that uh, signifies something deeper that's happening within the heart of the believer. And obviously, just the act alone without faith does absolutely nothing. It accomplishes nothing. Um, oh, I was going to tell you a story. I'm not going to tell you for sake of time. <laughs> but it is kind of funny and it has to do with me. But I'll, I'll leave it for now. Ask me later if you really want to know. So, when we look at physical signs, though, let's go right into that. Physical signs in Scripture, because I, I think sometimes, especially in the West, we've lost some of, the, some of the importance of some of those physical things that they were doing in the Old and New Testament. But the idea of a physical sign or ceremony that was expected amongst God's people, wasn't a, it wasn't a New Testament idea. It's not like the Jewish believers of that time were surprised that Jesus would call them to do this outward sign of an inward decision that they were making. Uh, they weren't surprised. If you look at the Old Testament um, with, with, the, with the old covenants there, and I won't go through all of that with what Pastor Ray did a fantastic job on. Uh, but if you look there, the, the Lord ordained there that the Jewish people be circumcised in order to demonstrate that they were a part of the covenant relationship with him. And even when you had sojourners or foreigners that came into their, into their camps, they were actually allowed to join the people of God if they too would follow uh, circumcision. So thankfully, uh, circumcision is no longer a law for us. Uh, but Romans 2, 25 and 29, and this is where it's important. Circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise not from man, but from God. And what, what he was getting here, and Paul is getting at, is that circumcision is an outward sign, but it doesn't do anything apart from faith. There ultimately has to be faith in the heart of the person. That's always been the case. If you actually look at Old and New Testament, often people are like, you know, the old God and the old covenant was canceled and now there's a new way to be saved. And the, the truth is actually, it, it was actually, it's more of a progression if you would look at it. It's not that one was canceled and a new one's enacted that's entirely different. It's more of a progression that's being completed uh, because faith is always how someone has been justified before God. It's always been faith. There's always had to be faith on the inside. But anyhow, moving to the New Testament, so you had the circumcision, things like that in the Old Testament. Now moving to the New Testament, we're no longer required to be circumcised, but there was a new ceremony. There was a new rite that was instituted or ordained by Jesus himself, and that was baptism. Uh, like I said, there was actually two. There's baptism and there is communion. But today we're just talking about baptism. So uh, you might be thinking, well, you know, baptism is great and all, but really, if it's just a symbol of an inward decision, I think all that matters for myself is that I made the inward decision. And with that, I would say, well, absolutely, you're, you're right, but I don't want you to stop there, <laughs> right? Let's not end the message right there. But you are right in the sense of what is most important is my decision. And asking yourself here this morning, you know, have I made a decision to follow Jesus? Have I counted the cost do I understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Asking and being able to answer those questions is absolutely of utmost importance. You know, it's not, it's not like I just say, well, you know, when I was a kid or when I was younger, I got baptized, now I just live however I want. I don't have to worry about it. I said a prayer, got baptized, so now I'm saved. No, 
those outward acts are great, but they have to be a reflection of what's going on inside. Absolutely, yes. But I want to make the case, though, that despite the fact that, yes, the heart decision is the most important, the, the utmost importance, that the outward sign is also important and shouldn't be minimized. It shouldn't be minimized, and it actually does something in the life of the believer. So the question is, is baptism necessary? And I would say baptism is necessary. The biblical order of believe and baptized, believe and be baptized, is very clear throughout the New Testament. Uh, you see it happening again and again. In fact, I'll go through a bunch of examples a little bit later. But for now, we'll look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. By the way, in the map challenge, we will be memorizing this. We're getting there. <laughs> It'll just happen closer to the end of summer. Uh, but this is part of what we're memorizing, the Beatitudes and the Great Commission, uh, because they're very instructive for the life of a believer. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So remember, Jesus is saying, All authority, I'm the Son of God, all authority has been given to me. Right? So he's setting the stage for now. What is he doing with that authority? He's making a command. He's ordaining. He's, he's, he's pushing us forward. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then we get the wonderful promise at the end. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And what an incredible uh, commission that he gave to us as followers. So as you can see here, it's commanded by Jesus himself. And that's why I would make the case, regardless of what else I'm going to say today, um, of why we should be baptized if we're believers. It, it simply goes back to Jesus ordained it. And what does it mean to, to, you know, to ordain? Ordain just means to establish or order by appointments, decree, or law. He was making a decree. It was very strong. He was saying, you go and be baptized, make disciples of the nations. And I would say because it's a command... That alone is, should be sufficient for us as believers to want to follow him into the waters of baptism. But I want to cover a couple of things here that are very important. Number one, is baptism necessary for salvation? So that's a very, very good question. And there is some disagreement on that. Uh, kind of coming out of Mark 16, 16 is often a proof text where it talks about if you are believing and baptized, then you will be saved. But actually, if you look at the next part, it says, and those who don't believe will not be saved. So you notice how he, you know, in the second part of that, that verse here, I didn't put it in here, I should have, but you can look at it later. In the second part of Mark 16, verse 16, you'll notice it actually not being saved, wasn't believed and baptized, it was just belief. Um, but, but secondly, scripture is actually very clear. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. That would be an outward work. And Romans 3, 28 says, for we hold that one is justified by what? Help me out. Faith, there we go, thank you. I know it's hard to project your voice apart from works of the law. Okay, so faith, not works, very, very important. But that's like we've always said, works are still important. We just have to understand works aren't how we're justified before God. They're still very important in the life of a believer and will have a great bearing in our reward when we stand before Jesus. Right, so uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. Amen. So, baptism necessary for salvation? Answering a resounding no. But is baptism necessary for the disciple of Jesus? For those that choose to follow him? And I would say, yes. It is necessary there. 
It's necessary in the life of a believer, and I'll go on to show you why. Like I said, in the Great Commission, Jesus ordained it. He ordained it. He said those who would believe would be baptized, and I'll go through a bunch of other scriptures. There's a lot of scripture that backs this up. It's all throughout the New Testament. And when, when we understand, I mean, remember, remember, James talks about if you believe that God is one, that's great, but even the demons believe right? And he talks about faith without works is dead. And, and the believer who actually loves God, who desires to follow him, will desire to follow him wherever he leads. Amen? Does that make sense? And if, if Jesus is saying, believe and be baptized, <laughs> then, then a believer, even if maybe you haven't heard this before, but then it should be important to us to follow him in that. If that's what he says is important, even if we don't understand it fully, if he says it's important and we should do it, then the follower of Christ should want to do it or at least be considering it. So um, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body. I, I preached on this, I think, in last fall, but we preached, he's talking about the church. Primarily here he's talking about the church and the expectations, the order in the church and the church's job and the church being us, not a building, right? We are the church, all that stuff. But he says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, right? To the one hope that belongs to your call. Then he goes on to say what we were called to. One Lord, one baptism, and then goes on to continue a list. And then talks about the church and the body that we, be, we become a part of. Um, but you see it in there again. One baptism, one Lord. It's, it's listed right up there in the utmost important area. Uh, Acts 2, 38 to 39. This one, you couldn't be more clear. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So everyone that God calls to himself, this promise is for them, but we're to be what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ. So that's important, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, for the forgiveness of sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's very interesting that we see that bit of an order there, and I don't think it's a formula. It's not formulaic, because it is by faith, but, but we do see an order there, right there in Acts. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why you don't find, uh, you know, this condition in, in, the, in the Western world. We've we haven't known totally how to wrestle with this issue of baptism. And some have said it's necessary for salvation. Everyone has to be, and it's just dogmatic, and it's, it's legalistic. And others have pushed away from that and said it's just a symbol anyways, and, and what matters is my heart. And there's, you know, there's truth on, on all sides, usually, is what we find out. Uh, but in many cases, because people have been uncertain, it's just been minimized. It's just been minimized or it just becomes like a rite of passage in the sense of, you know, you're moving through life and, you know, you get baptized, but we don't actually know uh, what we're doing. And many others remain unbaptized as believers. And they're, it's not that they're trying to disobey Jesus. I, I, I would never question someone's heart on that. Uh, that's, between, that's between you and Jesus, I always say, right? No one stands judged before me, but, but yet we minimize it. And, and if we look to scriptures, you're not going to find these camps of, believers, and you'll find the unbaptized believers, and you find the baptized believers, uh, what you're going to find is people believed, and then they were baptized. And that's what you're going to find. You're going to find that order in Scripture. And, you know, we see the 3,000 that were baptized on Pentecost. <laughs> that would have been incredible to be there. Wouldn't that have? Can you imagine 3,000 people? Uh, 25, I've already just I, I can't tell you how many times I've thanked the Lord for that and for the membership numbers. I just think those are incredible. Not that numbers are everything, but to me, it's representing God moving in hearts, right? And that's what gets me excited. But 
3,000 heard the message, believed, and were baptized. I mean, I can imagine the, the, you know, the logistical nightmare. You know, whoever was doing it, the admin for that and trying to set up the tanks and all that kind of stuff, right? The logistical nightmare of making sure that everyone understood what they were doing and, you know, that everything was clean. I don't know if they did social distancing back then. Probably not. Uh, but, but you can just imagine 3,000. It must have been a celebration. And you know what? I bet you it wasn't just a celebration on the earth. I bet you it was there, but it will have been a celebration in the heavenlies. As 3,000 people were making a declaration, a public declaration of their, of their allegiance to Jesus. And I'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But the Samaritan believers were baptized in Acts 8 verse 5. By the way, there's these notes online. I know you're probably accustomed to that, but if you're not, we, uh, we give handouts now and you can follow along there. They are online. If you want to go back and look at things that I've posted you can, or that I've talked about, it's all in there. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. Remember, that, remember the story of Philip? I just, that's like, it's kind of almost Star Trek-y if you understand what Star Trek is, but they had, you know, the beam me up Scotty and you kind of move over. The Bible actually has the first beaming device. The Holy Spirit beamed Philip. He took him from wherever he was, transports him, and suddenly he's with this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, and who's reading Isaiah, doesn't understand it. And he opens his eyes and helps him understand the gospel, and the guy receives Jesus. And he says, well, is there anything, the, the eunuch says, is there anything keeping me from being baptized in this ditch over here? Philip says, no, I don't see why not. So he goes right there, believes, baptized in a ditch. And I, I love the heart there. And then the Lord zaps Philip, however he did that, back to wherever he was and he was gone. And I think that's pretty incredible. Cornelius, upon receiving uh, Jesus as Lord and Savior, also felt the Holy Spirit drawing him in and he was baptized, him and his household. Acts 10, 44 to 48, uh, Peter was still, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the, the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This was brand new to them. They couldn't believe God's grace that his Holy Spirit that he would pour out over the Gentiles, not just the circumcised Jews. Remember, those are the ones that were part of the covenant relationship with God. And now here they're standing with amazement. This is totally wild. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is now being poured out on these Gentiles. And it says, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They, they, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him for, to remain for some days. I just love that. And, and this is like example after example in the scriptures that you'll find in the New Testament. Uh, although, I, this is some of the stuff I had to cut out, but there are examples of, of washings. There were ceremonial washings and baptism in the Old Testament as well. So the Jews will have had a different understanding of baptism than us, but don't have time for that. Um, but in the New Testament, we'll stick with the baptism of Jesus Christ. And that is seen again and again, people would believe. And the first thing you see Jesus commanding is be baptized. Peter's doing the same thing. He commands them to be baptized. He said, this is the first step of obedience that you take now. You receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now your very first act that you're going to do as a believer is you're going to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. Uh, Lydia and her household were baptized, Acts 16. Uh, the Philippian jailer and his whole family were baptized, right? In Acts 16, Acts 16 again, just a little bit further. Uh, converts at Corinth were baptized. Sispus, Gaius, and household of Stephanus were also baptized. And lastly, even Jesus himself was baptized. 
And that one is a little bit more puzzling to us because the rest of it makes sense, right? Why would Jesus be baptized? Now, Jesus entered into a different baptism, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but it was very important to Jesus that he was baptized. He traveled by foot uh, somewhere around 90 kilometers, right? So that would have been multiple days, probably five days journey uh, that he will have taken just to walk over to John to be baptized. So Jesus makes a big difference. You think about how busy Jesus was, and he's making the time to walk, you know, five days there, and I guess that whatever time it takes to go to the next place, uh, but he goes there to be baptized. Look at Matthew 3, 11 to 17. I baptize you with water, this is John, for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Don't you love the beauty in how John is speaking of Jesus? I just love that you can see the heart that longs after God. You can see how his admiration of the Lord, but whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And there's lots we could talk about there. There's other baptisms, right? There's the water baptism, there's the Holy Spirit baptism, and there's a baptism of fire uh, that is also coming uh, to cleanse and purify. But we won't talk about that today. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by, by you and, and you come to me? Can you imagine if you were doing baptisms in a river and you're baptizing people upon confession of their faith and Jesus himself is suddenly standing before you and you recognize him for who he is? Can you imagine how awkward that would have been? I would have, I mean, first you almost want to just fall down, but I would have said the same thing. I'm not baptizing you. Please baptize me. Please, right? We want to we submit under his lordship. And yet Jesus said, let it be so. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Isn't that interesting? So he's fulfilling righteousness by walking into baptism. But we know baptism, part of it is about dying to self or the, the, the sin nature dying. But Jesus doesn't have a sin nature to be crucified. So what exactly is happening here? Well, Jesus' baptism is more than just a symbol. And that's what I was getting at earlier. When we see baptism as merely a symbol... Sometimes we, we minimize its importance in our lives. Because if it's just a symbol, well, we have the real thing. Why worry about the symbol? But I'll make the case that it is a symbol, but it's more than that. And we're, we're going to see it in what Jesus was accomplishing. Uh, but first, what does baptism mean? So what is the purpose of baptism? That's really what we're getting at now. And like I said, it's not just a symbol, although it is a symbol. <laughs> so hear me saying the, uh, it is, but it isn't. So it is absolutely a symbol. It totally, there's, there is rich symbolism in buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. Absolutely. Very rich symbolism in that. And that's very important. Uh, but there's another purpose being achieved and that is identification. Identification was a main purpose of baptism and even how it was used uh, when referring to other baptisms. And we'll talk about two others uh, right now. Uh, common use in scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. Well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Sometimes we just skip over a verse like that. Baptized into Moses? What's that all about? <laughs> right? They're baptized. They were identified with Moses and that covenant with God. They were identifying with him. They were baptized underneath him. It also, some of the secondary meanings of baptism and how it was used is to come under the influence and to identify with. So that's one example. But it gets even clearer when we look at John the baptism, or John the baptism, John the Baptist and the baptism that he was performing. Because 
He's, he talks about how we were just reading that. He came to baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is baptizing with water for repentance for the one who's coming after him. So those that were being baptized by John were identifying with what? Repentance towards God, that they were sinful people that needed a savior. They were identifying with that with John. They were also identifying as those who were waiting for the one who was to come, the Messiah. Now you might say, well, I mean, baptism is probably just baptism, right? Like water baptism is baptisms, like, like it doesn't really matter. But I'll, I'll show you in Acts actually where it shows you that, that it did matter to, to the early Christians. It mattered which baptism you received. Look at this in Acts 19, 1 to 6. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Good question. They said, no, we have not heard of this, this Holy Spirit. Right? So I, I just love it. This is Christianity in its infancy stages. It's starting to spread. It's multiplying on its own. And, you know, I, I mean, good doctrine is very critical and important, and we should strive for it. But I love it here. You're seeing examples of the Christian church. The church is growing faster than good doctrine and theology can keep up with. And so they're not even sure. They're believing in Jesus, and they're becoming saved. Uh, they're looking for this Messiah, but they don't even understand about the Holy Spirit. And then it says... Um, Paul says to them, into what then were you baptized? Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Oh, Paul says, oh, okay. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come. That reflects what Matthew was saying. Right? So you're baptized, you're identifying with, we need a Messiah and we're waiting for him to come. That's what you're, uh, you're identifying with. And, and then he goes on to say, and that is Jesus. On hearing this, because Jesus has come. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we see an example in Scripture of rebaptism. They'd gotten baptized by John, and now they were going to be baptized in Jesus Christ. And it says, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. I think that's pretty incredible. So what are we identifying with as believers uh, when we follow the Lord into the waters of baptism? That's probably what you're wondering, right? Well, maybe. First thing we're identifying with is his death and resurrection. So Jesus' death, his burial, or he was put in a tomb and his resurrection. So we are identifying with that. And this is important. Because if we're identifying with someone, we're aligning our lives up with it. It's not just we're symbolizing what he did. We're actually identifying with what we're doing. <laughs> do, do you see the difference? There's a difference. I'm not just an actor acting out, this is what Jesus did. He was buried and raised to walk in newness of life. I'm actually saying Jesus was buried. He was, he was put to death, right? And then he was raised to walk in newness of life. And I'm identifying with that and I'm saying, I am being buried. And I am being raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 to 6. Do you, not, uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we who have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in here you see kind of notes of newness of life for both now, but also in the resurrection of the dead that's going to happen later. 
right? So the, 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 it's, it's two kinds of life. And I think that's pretty incredible. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So yes, there is rich symbolism in baptism in what we're doing. That's even why, well, it's one of the reasons I love immersion uh, is because of the symbolism, right? Buried with Christ. You see that burying nature and then raised to walk in newness of life. I think there's a lot of beauty in that, but it's more than a beautiful picture. You know, it's more than having a nice cross on the wall and it's just a beautiful picture. It's, it's not just a symbol. We're identifying with what happened there. We're saying we're following suit. And that's very important. As a person's lowered into the, bo- into the water, it's symbolizing their old way of life is being put to death and buried. They will no longer be slaves to sin, but they are now calling upon a new master. They will be slaves of righteousness. That, but, but I want you to, to pause here. What are we dying to? Because we're not dead yet. And this is why baptism is important, but it's also important that we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're not just putting to death our sin nature. We're actually putting to death our flesh, our old self, which actually includes more than our sin nature. It actually includes our, our whole body, our thoughts, our dreams, our work, our finances, our money, all of our stuff, everything that is ours We're taking all of that and we're putting it down at the feet of Jesus. We're saying it's all yours. Old is gone. We're coming out a new creation, dedicating our lives to him to walk in newness of life as new creations with a new master. And that brings me forward to the second thing that we're identifying with. And this is very, very critical um, because remember, we're not identifying, we're not baptized into John. We're not baptized into Moses. By being baptized into Jesus Christ, we are identifying with Christ as not only our Savior, but as our functional Lord. We're identifying with him. We are saying he is our only Savior, but he is also my Lord. He is my new master. Before, I was a slave to sin. Even my righteousness, like scripture says, was filthy rags to him. I was a slave to sin, but now I have been put to death and I'm identifying myself as, a, as I belong to Jesus. I have a new master, a new Lord. We're declaring we identify with, with Jesus. We identify with the body of Christ, his church, and we identify as being part of a church body. And that's really what we're getting at with Ephesians 4. And there's other passages like that. We don't have time to go through them all, but... That's an important piece of baptism, more than symbolism. It's actually a declaration. It's a declaration of identification. We are taking on a new identity. Our identity is now being found in Christ. It's taking on a new identity. And yes, obviously this happens first in the heart. I know, I'm not saying that. Remember what I was saying before. The heart decision is the most important, but that physical sign is also important to us. And it's kind of putting our bodies moving in the direction that our heart has already chosen. Does that make sense? So we're moving that direction, but, but Jesus also commands it. So Christian baptism, it's an identification. We're identifying public, publicly with Jesus Christ. We're declaring our personal faith in him. We are acknowledging that we are depending upon Jesus and his death alone for salvation. We are saying, I am a believer. I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm on his side public declaration. You know, we, we also do other public declarations, a marriage ceremony. What is a marriage ceremony? When I got married to Louise, I remember, um, I think she's here somewhere. Hi, honey, wherever you are. But uh, when I got married to her, actually, we got married in this building, but it was the old sanctuary. So now it's kind of in the cafeteria, but we got married in there. I remember standing, I don't remember what I said, but I remember standing before everyone and making my, and, and declaring my vows. 
And I, I, I remember it was very hard for me to stand still and I had one solitary bead of sweat. Just, it was like a faucet that just ran on the right side of my cheek. Anyways, but the point is, what was I doing? In front of all of my friends and family and some of their friends and, and actually some of, maybe, I bet you some of you were there. But anyways, there was others from the church that were there that had been praying for me in front of everyone. I was declaring what? That I am, I am forsaking all else. I'm not going after anybody else anymore. I'm just, my eyes and my heart are only for this woman that's standing in front of me, Louise Dirksen. Do you see that public declaration? Now, obviously, you know, is the public declaration everything in marriage? <laughs> if you didn't know, it's not. There is a lot more to it. There is work that comes after, right? That's, but, it, but the ceremony is important. Can you imagine if the person that agreed to marry you, if they said, well, I don't really want to do the ceremony because I don't want people to see me, me being identified with you. That'd be a difficult pill to swallow. Now, I understand there's, there's reasons why people don't. We have, you know, big church and there's social anxiety. I get all of that stuff, okay? So don't, don't hear me. I'm not trying to guilt anyone into it. The Holy Spirit has to call you, but, but I'm just trying to make a point that baptism is something that's important, what it's, what it's symbolizing, what it declares, what we're identifying with, who we're identifying with is extremely important for us as believers. Matthew 10 32 to 33 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, obviously, this isn't just talking about baptism. It's much bigger than baptism. But there is this idea of we are called as believers to, to stand publicly and identify with Christ Jesus. And baptism is one piece of that, but there's others as well. We're called to stand publicly and not back down in who we belong to. And that is clearly found in Scripture. Now, remember I was talking about Jesus' baptism and how there was more than just symbolism going on there? Well, I find this interesting um, because now we look at it in the context of identification. What was Jesus identifying with? He had never sinned. But yet as he walked through the waters of baptism himself, he was identifying with the sin of those he came to save. He was identifying with us as sinners. He was already, it was a picture and a declaration of his desire to actually identify with us as sinners, to come down to our level. Let that sink in. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If that truth doesn't grab your heart, I'd encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians 5.21 and sit on it and repeat it again and again and ask the Holy Spirit to grab your heart to reveal himself to you. Because what he did for you and for me was beyond anything that we could ever do. He paid the penalty that was on us so that we could spend eternity with him. Remember what we talked about in uh, the Knowing God series? What is eternal life in this life and, and life beyond? Knowing God. He paid the price so that we could know him. That's very important. So in response to this, how could we not want to follow Jesus in obedience into the waters of baptism and so identify with his death, his resurrection, identifying with the forgiveness of sins and publicly declare him as our Lord and Savior? 
When we identify with Christ, it confirms that our new identity is now found in Christ. It's no longer found in our sin nature. We're no longer, you know, uh, an addict or a, or a this or a luster or a this or that. No, we belong to Christ. We are a Christian. We have become something new and we are ones that are being perfected in day by day until we see Jesus face to face. So when we follow Jesus into the waters of baptism, we are following him in obedience. I also think there's one other piece and I don't have time to really expand on this, but I'll just say there also seems to be a support for extra grace given. I know a lot of churches believe in that there's extra grace given or the Holy Spirit given upon baptism. Uh, I want to be careful not to make it too formulaic as well as make it like if you're not baptized, you don't have grace or you don't have the Holy Spirit. Anyone who believes, and Pastor Ray did a great job of explaining this in the Holy Spirit series, has the Holy Spirit. But there does seem to be a biblical case and basis for seeing extra grace given and an extra measure of the Spirit given to those who were baptized. I mean, we said it in Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see that, but I want to be careful. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation the thief on the cross, did he be, was he baptized? No. No, he died very shortly after giving his life to Christ. And Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we know, we know it's not formulaic, but at the same time, we see it in scripture, in Acts, but we also see it modeled in Matthew 3 in Jesus' baptism. Right? Jesus goes into the waters of baptism. He comes out. And what's, what does it report in Matthew 3 that happens? A, a what? A Dove, yeah, there we go. A dove comes down. The Holy Spirit came down and rested upon him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am fully pleased. I just, I wish I was there for that. I hope we get to watch play, uh, you know, uh, playbacks or, re, or redos or reruns of some of these uh, stories when we get to heaven. So anyhow, there does seem to be an extra grace given. It's like a, a Chris Carr, when he talks about in the baptism course, talks about an, uh, a flick of a switch. It's like a light switch is being turned on. There seems to be extra grace given, an extra measure of the Holy Spirit for those who follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. And you might be saying, well, why? What's so important about it again, other than the reasons I mentioned? Well, I would just say the most simplistic answer to answer this would be obedience. Those who walk by faith in step with the Spirit have more of the Spirit in their life. And as we walk into the waters of baptism, we are taking that step of obedience. And in the step of obedience, obedience to Christ is where we find life. It's where we find grace. It's where we find strength to keep going. Even when he asks us to do impossibly hard things. And I think that's probably some of the reason there. Um, but I won't make a big point of it. So let, let's move forward to qualifications. This is the last thing I wanted to do with you, the qualifications for baptism. Uh, because maybe some of you want to be baptized now. You're looking for a ditch. Is there a di There's no ditch. But uh, I, have co I have coffee. No, you're not using my coffee. Speaking of that, mm, that's perfect. All right, Acts 2.38, what are the qualifications? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So according to Scripture, there's two things that we see. Believe, repent. Those are the two things we really see in Scripture, the qualifications for being baptized. So if you are a repentant believer, then you are qualified for baptism. That's all it takes. You're qualified. Now, there is a case you might be saying, well, then why aren't we like any, like let's just rush into this and let, let everyone be baptized. There is a case to be made for waiting. So you might say for disobedience, 
Now, I'm not saying for disobedience. I would never give you a case for that. Uh, but there is a case for waiting in the sense of age. There, there is a case there. And the reason would be based on understanding what you're doing. And I think that's, that's biblical. I know some churches will observe infant baptism, that sort of thing. We don't see examples of it in scripture, although I find it best not to create disunity over these kind of matters. Uh, but in scripture, we find upon the confession of your faith, people need to understand what they're, what they're confessing and what they're believing in. And when you look at other places, even in scripture where people were baptized immediately, there was a big cost associated with identifying yourself publicly with Jesus Christ. So there was a cost. In many cases, you, you lost rights and you lost privileges and you might have lost even family members. And that is the case in many places in the world. And in the West, it's a lot easier to say a prayer and not mean it. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not questioning anyone who's said a prayer here, but I'm just saying it's easier if everyone around you is doing it. There's no, there's no outward cost that we see. We just say a prayer and we're part of that. And for that reason, there is a case to be made for waiting on baptism. And here what we have done is, um, you know, we, have, uh, we baptize people as young as 12 years old, uh, but anyone under 16, we, we require parental guidance in the whole thing so that the parents are involved in the decision to make sure that the one getting baptized understands. So understanding is very important. I'll use the example of, of marriage again, uh, because, you know, when you see someone get married, I'm, I'm taking this example from Chris Carr. So sorry, Chris, I'm stealing your thunder on this marriage one. It was just too good. I had to use it. Anyways, when you get married, you stand in front of, in front of all these people and you're young, usually you're young, sometimes you're older. And if you're older, you might have gotten to the place where you understand what you're saying. But the young ones, like when I got married, I had no idea what I was signing up for. Like I had no idea. Like there was things that I was committing to. Oh, of course, sickness and health will always be together. Isn't that what you say? My best friend. Sick, like, like it's like joy. No matter what happens, there's nothing that can make me stop feeling this way. Nothing that can make me stop feeling this way. And then you're married for some time and you realize there's lots of things that can make you stop feeling anything. That the commitment runs a lot deeper than your feelings. It's not just about feelings. There's something deeper to it. Now, would I discourage people from getting married because they're too young and immature and don't understand how difficult it's going to be? And the answer is no. However, there is an exclusion to that. I would make sure that they understand what the covenant is that they're committing to. And there is a difference. There is a difference. I don't expect people to be perfect, but I would expect them to understand the covenant. Let's say I'm talking to Bob and he was going to marry Susie and Bob's telling me, yeah, I'm getting married to Susie. It's great. Uh, she's by far been my favorite girlfriend. So I figured I'd marry her and kind of put her above the rest. And I'd say above the rest. What are you talking about, Bob? Well, I mean, I'm still going to have my other girlfriends. I'm just like marrying her, you know, because I'm telling her she's my favorite. I'd be like, no, Bob, we're not marrying you and Susie. You have no idea what marriage is. It's not that. It's not saying you're my favorite girlfriend or boyfriend. It's a commitment. It's a forsaking of your rights. It's a commitment to, that you are making to another person that you, will be, that you will love them and them alone no matter what happens. It's a lifelong commitment that through sickness and health, you will be committed to them. And it's, a, and, and it's not that you have to be perfect, but you're going to be on a new trajectory now and part of your life will be lived for that other person. I would make sure they understood the covenant before we would marry them. Does that make sense? In the same way with baptism, I would say the same thing. I would actually say that I would argue the same thing for even making a convert of Jesus before someone prays the prayers that we should take more time making sure people understand the commitment that they're making. So it's not just words 
And then they, it, their, you know, their whole life gets shattered when they realize that it's not what they thought they signed up for. And that's why it's important. Today we're focusing on the baptism, but I would say even with, you know, le- leading someone to Jesus, it's important they understand the covenant relationship. And this is what I'm getting at. How are we saved? Obviously by faith alone. We're saved by grace through faith. Scripture's clear in that. Amen. But there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. But I think the reward is worth far more than we could ever give him. Though salvation cannot be earned, it can only be received. There is a cost to following Jesus, to receiving him as your savior. You are also receiving him as your functional Lord. This means you lay down your life, not just, not just figuratively, but literally. Your relationships, hobbies, dreams, work, time, money, you're all, you're everything. And by so doing, you find your true life in Christ alone. I'm sure others have written it better. I had to come up with a succinct statement on what it means to me to follow Jesus. But that's what it means. There's a cost in following him. It has cost me everything, but I would say it's cost me nothing at all. That's the beauty of following Jesus. When you get the reward, when you get his spirit in you and you get his presence and you have a relationship with him, you start knowing him, you realize it both costs you everything and costs you nothing. Because in comparison, what you receive is far, far greater But it is important we understand there is a cost, and that's clear. We could have a whole message on just the cost of following Jesus. At some point, I'm sure we will. Uh, But for now, Mark 10, 17 to 31, I'm just going to take snippets here. Um, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Oh, I love this. Jesus looking at him. This is the rich young ruler. You know, he cut rich young ruler comes to our church or comes to me and says, hey, I want to get involved. And I say, okay, what kind of person are you? And he starts telling me, you know, I've followed all the commandments. I love my mother and father. I've been given, doing all this stuff. Rich young ruler. I'm like, sweet. We got a new volunteer. You want to be a member? (laughs) Right? Like, let's get you signed up. It's not what Jesus did. He didn't read the same books on church growth strategies that that we have, right? (laughs) He goes, and and it says here, he looked at him and loved him. He loved him. So what did he say? Well, this is what he said. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus said it. he loved him by saying, you have one thing that you're holding back from me and I'm asking for it all. It's all or nothing with Jesus. But those who give him their all gain everything. They gain everything. It's just not treasure in this world. It's treasure in the next. All right. This is the cost of following Jesus. We're called to pick up our cross as an instrument of death and we're called to follow him wholeheartedly. And those who follow him in this way discover eternal life, which is knowing God in this life and the life to come. So we're going to do a practical exercise here because I want to give an opportunity for the Lord to speak to each of us. Some of you who are baptized, uh, he's going to speak to us there. Uh, Are we living out the declaration that we made? Is our lives marked by love and obedience to Jesus? Others of you, maybe you believe and you haven't been baptized. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to you on that now. Maybe, Maybe this next week you want to be baptized. If you want to be baptized, we'll make a way. The sign-up's online. I put the link on here as well. You can be baptized. If you feel the Lord's knocking at the heart, then now's your time. Sign up today. I would encourage you. And, and maybe you're, you have never given your life to Jesus. I put a, an example of a salvation prayer that you can pray too. And then you too can, be, you can sign up and get baptized next week. But weigh the cost. We'll take a moment and weigh the cost. And if it's no, well, 
then I would encourage you to take some time this next week or the week after and prayerfully consider what's holding you back. So Lord, right now we just want to sit still before you. For those who have been ba- or who have been baptized, Lord, are we living out the commitment that we made to you and we identified with you? Can people see it in our lives? And for those who believed and have not been baptized, Lord, could you speak to them today? I believe you are calling. There are people here and those that are listening that you are calling into the waters of baptism. It's a step of obedience. You want to meet them there. And there's going to be a a treasure that they find in those waters, and that treasure is you. And maybe there's others here that have never never known you at all. And today you you are asking, you're standing at the door and knocking, you're asking if they would let you in. And Lord, would you speak to us now? Lord, today, for those of you, if there's anyone listening today, that you've been debating if you want to follow Jesus for some time, and today you feel like you want to say yes, today, Lord, I ask that you would move in their hearts, that you would give them grace as they make their commitment to you to follow. Lord, we choose to follow you with our lives, to give up our rights and our lives to following you. We receive you as both Lord and Savior of our lives. Lord, for the rest of us today, we are asking as we reflect on our commitment to you, that you would really move in our hearts to continue walking in simple obedience and worship to you. That's what Romans 12 says, laying our lives down on the altar. This is spiritual worship. It's acts of obedience following you in that. And so so today, Lord, we are choosing to say yes to you, giving you our yes. And Lord, for those that are here that have not been baptized, they're wanting to get baptized or they're feeling that draw inside. Holy Spirit, would you give them the strength, the courage to take that step, click that link and to follow you into the waters of baptism. And I pray that you would give them the courage to follow through. And for those, Lord, those 25 that are already signed up, already, Lord, we ask for a hedge of protection to be put around them that your spirit would be meeting them all week as they are choosing to walk in this step of obedience to you. Lord, would you meet them in powerful ways? Would you fill them with your grace? And we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our church, in our lives, in our families. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.